0: I'm Jill Shaw and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill.
1: Last night, the meeting began with the superintendent's report where she noted that we have lost two students in the past week and it's very sad circumstances for both students. And so the meeting began with recognition of their loss to the Boston community and a moment of silence. Then the superintendent went on to talk about chronic absenteeism and noted that there was a story in the Boston Globe that BPS is making progress towards lowering chronic absenteeism. In fact, the superintendent noted that chronic absenteeism is down by about 7% over the last, I guess, few months.
0: Right. It's down 7%. It's still extremely high though, right?
1: We're at about 40%, Jill, uh, chronic absenteeism across BPS. And now, remember, chronic absenteeism is defined by students who miss 10% or more days of a school year. So over the course of a school year, that could be 20 days of school lost. And so 40% of students being chronically absent is still tremendously high and concerning.
0: Yeah, very concerning. Once the conversation moved into questions from school committee... Brandon Cardette Hernandez asked a question about another story that the superintendent hadn't mentioned, but which also appeared this past week in The Globe. It was a story that was involving uh, an improper payment of a plumbing contract, which cost the district an extra $25,000. Here's Brandon's quote.
2: A lot of people saw in the news this week or this last week around the recent investigation around some improper payment uh, that happened across the system. And I just want to hear if there's anything to us you want to share around what's happening. I read that you are calling for uh, outside audit. Um, I just want to know if there's anything more that we should be aware of.
1: So Jill, the the superintendent noted that they are working on developing internal controls, but they don't currently have that expertise. And so they're going to seek out assistance, outside assistance, as they've done in other key areas to help understand what's happening with this contract issue.
0: Right, so so that sits in procurement. So somewhere in procurement, currently, it sounds like Boston Public School doesn't have a way to make sure that procurement is happening the way it's supposed to be happening. Brandon cardet Hernandez said, you know, this is, he's worried about the fact that it's part of a larger trend of data issues that keep presenting themselves over the past couple of months. And he asks the superintendent what the broader plan is to control for these mistakes. Here's Brandon Cardet Hernandez again.
2: Mistakes happen and we want to sort of assume best intentions, but I guess it makes me wonder, you know, like it feels like every few months there's a story or a thing that's sort of starts to bubble up around improper data, or from the sort of exam school thing we saw to other issues that have been here that have required us to call for external auditing at multiple times. I'm wondering, it's good to hear that you're thinking about sort of local controls, but then at the same time, is there anything preemptive that we're thinking around other parts of the organization that we want to be doing auditing, given some of the other system failures that I think you probably are discovering as you come into the role?
1: So Jill, on this, you know, Vice Chair O'Neill chimed in and said, "Look, wh- what is the plan for bringing in an in-house auditor and risk manager?" Right. Um, you know, he, he's basically saying, "Look, we we've, we've been talking about this for a few years. The previous superintendent raised the need for having." A risk manager and an office, and this was related to Esser, Jill. Remember, so right, so and to when, make sure
0: that we were spending it appropriately, right, and, and it, to make sure we controlled for understanding where we're spending and how much we had left.
1: Exactly, and so so, and and Mr. O'Neill is basically saying, "Where is this office? I've been asking, you know, where where is this internal auditor and this office of risk management?"
0: But then the superintendent said. Well, we do have a director of the office of internal auditing and that that person is still working to build out further capacity. So it's interesting. So it sounds like we do have a director in place. But Ross, then it begs the question, why are all these issues happening? Why isn't that person present in the discussion about those issues and who's in charge of these things like payments and contracts and the exam school data, which we hear about throughout the course of last night's meeting.
1: Look, Jill, we have broken systems. These are basic systems. You know How you execute contracts in government is a basic system. How you run algorithms and run data for school assignment is a basic system. It's a fundamental system of a school system. How you pay teachers and pay educators in your school system is the basis for a school system. These are not mysterious things. These are not new things. These are things that are the basics of any system. And the superintendent is basically saying, we have to bring other people in to help us understand how to do our jobs better. If your base is broken, it's highly concerning. The school system needs to not only hire somebody to make sure that there's internal controls Mm -hmm. and auditing and risk management, But they need to have people in charge of these systems that know what they're doing.
0: Right. And it sounds like the school committee is getting asked by a number of parents and families and students about exam school admission and the data around that. And so Brandon, Cardette, Hernandez kind of continues this line of questioning, but asks this question specific to the data around the applications to exam schools.
2: And then the sort of top line question for me is really how many young people who were eligible, didn't get a seat uh, based on capacity?
1: It it is a very elegant question, Jill. It's been a very basic question. Simple. Right. How many people who were deemed eligible for exam school seats did not get a seat? Right. So that's
0: applications minus seats awarded. Exactly. That's his question. Right. There's no answer.
1: Exactly. And the superintendent responds that they're working right now to pull these data and they want to make a comprehensive report to the school committee on the June 7th meeting. You know, Mr. Credit Hernandez goes a little bit further here and he and he says, look, I, I don't need a
2: really beautiful chart. I'm just
1: asking a question. Do you know the answer to this question? As
2: a member of the committee, and I'm just saying this, it feels a little tough to be like, it's taking us a month to have this conversation that like we have exp- systems that can produce some of this data. I know it might not come in a beautiful chart, but so I'm just saying that in the fear that I have is the thing that I will always say around these issues where it's like you have people who are asking for seats in a particular place and we have capacity in such huge ways across our district and the more time we were I think we spend trying to make the chart really pretty the less time we have talking about solutions for the fall to build capacity elsewhere if it's possible.
1: You know, and he's he's basically saying, as an obligation, I have an obligation as a school committee member to see
0: these data and to help inform my work and so the superintendent responds back to Brandon Cardet, Hernandez, that she is hoping to have the data to present by June seventh, which is the next school committee meeting. Honestly, Ross, it seems a little crazy to me that she doesn't have data right now. This is just it's it's a we're, it's a policy that's transforming an important part of the district. How no one wants to have their finger on the pulse of this is beside me unless nobody wants to have the their finger on the pulse of this, right? Yeah. And well, so Well,
1: I mean, Mr. Cadet Hernandez is I, this issue of saying the less time we have talking about solutions for the upcoming year, right? The less time we'll be able to solve this issue, right? And I think what he's pointing to, Jill, is is a very basic idea here. Is if how many students who are deemed eligible by the school department to go to one of our three exam schools, which are highly sought after right. for a number of reasons, if that number is like, let's just say the number is like 150 kids, yeah, that is literally a manageable number. Well, you, totally. you could you could
0: add yes.
1: those kids to the seats, and right. you could solve this issue. And right. every kid that is deemed eligible and wants to go to an exam school could go to an exam school.
0: And you could ensure that you keep all of those kids in the district, which yes. I, I think yes. is, I, would, I don't know, I would hope is the goal.
1: And to, i just say one more thing on this issue. I think the district has lost a lot of confidence of, of parents on this issue. Like they have sure. twice a, in a row, they've screwed up how they've implemented this policy. Actually, more than that. And you know, and they're basically saying that kids are who are incredibly highly qualified because of the new policy that they can't go to an exam school. They also note that the other schools in Boston need significant improvement and they failed to improve those schools. They have failed to focus on improving those schools. And so they leave it as this is the only option. So you got to solve this issue, Jill. You got to stop kicking it down the curb. It won't go away. It's well, not gonna it's, go away.
0: it's fine to sit behind Zoom as a bunch of adults, and even it's fine to call in as a bunch of adults. You know, the problem is is that the folks who really suffer are are students who have no voice in this, who can't make any decisions, who I, I'm sure have a hard time understanding this extremely convoluted exam school policy. It used to be very clear what right. you know what you had to do in order to get in, and so it seems like a real catastrophe. That we put all of this on a few students instead of you know being able to have decent conversations about it in real time and and to yep. try to fix the issue.
1: Yep. Well, Jill, we moved on to to public comment last night. We had twenty three public commenters, and this exam school issue came up again during public comment, where a parent started by sharing that his child received a ninety five out of hundred points in the composite score for exam school consideration and did not get an exam school seat. And here's this parent.
3: He got a letter from the
1: state, from the D.C., saying that he had his exceptional student on MCAS.
3: And he is asking me why his friends, one person who lives in his zone six, which is stone's throw throw away from our house, he got into into BLS. And another student who got less score, both of them got less score than he did, and they got into BLS because of the vagaries of the zoning. And he's asking me why
1: he cannot get into his school. And when his friends got into the school, when he, ha- when he worked so hard
3: to get these great scores, we, I ask you guys, what, do, what should I tell my child?
1: So, Jill, as a reminder, last year, when the school committee was debating this, a policy was presented to the committee one week. And then the next meeting, the day of the vote of the school committee, a different policy was presented by BPS, different than the one they were supposed to vote on. Mm-hmm. And remember, <laughs> we talked about this, like the these exam school task force worked for so long to come up with a recommendation to only be changed at the last minute by BPS. Yeah. But, uh, and then Vice Chair O'Neill Warned everybody uh, that while they should all vote on the policy and pass it, there will be unintended consequences. Yeah. So the committee moved on. They they approved it. You know, and they said basically later, let's look at uh, simulations and models and outcomes, and then we'll adjust the policy. But let's all just move on and vote yes now.
0: You know what, though, Ross, I don't even know if there have been unintended consequences. I mean, maybe what was passed is achieving the goals and objectives of the school committee. It's not clear because there is no data ever presented on what happened afterwards. You know, we know that there's now a long wait list. We don't know how many kids are on it. We don't know how many kids don't apply who used to apply, you know. And so maybe it's working exactly the way school committee wants it to work. It's really tough to tell.
1: Well, we'll, I think what we should do, Jill, is link back to some of the episodes we have on this exam school policy because we highlight these issues. We actually, the school committee looked at data from the last exam school round. We have a summary of that that we can also provide our listeners. So if, if folks are interested, we'll we'll link to those to have a refresher on this exam school issue.
0: Okay. So then we moved on in public comment. We heard about another data or processing issue uh, when a number of educators testified during public comment that they still haven't received back pay. So I don't know. That issue has come up several times. And I, I, I think, I don't know, I was under the impression that it was all taken care of, but it's, well, it's John, surprising this one, right, that this, it's not.
1: This one really revolves around educators who are helping other educators get certified from the state through taking these, these classes called MTEL prep classes, which is the teacher licensure test. Mm-hmm. And they haven't been paid for all the work that they've been doing, I think for like maybe a year. Yeah. And these educators are basically saying, you know, we've come, we've had to like, come to school committee to mm-hmm. ask you to pay us because yep. nobody else will answer our calls or help us get
0: paid. We're just hearing at school committee then, there's there's issues in data and processing and understanding what's happening in procurement, in HR, and then operationally, there, there are issues too. And then we have issues around the exam school execution.
1: Right, right. So, so we have an assignment, we have assignment issues. The
0: so so yeah. assignment, so it's at least three departments major department. Uh, absolutely. And,
1: yeah. and you know, and Jill, on this one, you know, Mr. Credit Hernandez brings this up at the end of the meeting, a new business uh, to the superintendent. And, and he basically says, look, what are, are you going to solve this? Like we, we have people not being paid again and, and mm. nobody's talked about it. And the superintendent responded that that her team is already working on it. And she sort of minimized it a little bit by saying this may only be a few people. But Mr. Conant Hernandez pushed on this a little bit, Jill, because he's like, if people are calling and and can't get an answer, like good customer service, it's not only the fact that, okay, you're going to solve getting paid, but how do you have better customer service? Like all the fundamentals of the district need to be worked on here. And I think this was pointed out well last night. The rest of the public comments, Jill, focused really on the merger vote that would happen later in the meeting where parents from the impacted communities came to speak to the school committee. The families that showed up last night were really from the Sumner school. So we didn't hear and from families from the Philbrick, mm-hmm. but we heard from a number of families at the Sumner and those two schools are merging. And then we heard from families at the Taylor School and not from the Shaw and the Shaw and the Taylor are merging. And they were urging members to to ensure that there was good processes put in place going forward. And some of the members of the Sumner community were basically saying, you know, you should we're okay voting yes for us but you, that doesn't mean you should have to vote yes for the Taylor and the Shaw going forward. And we can get into this, Jill, in, in just a little bit.
0: Yeah, so before those votes, there was a vote on school choice. And it, it seemed like this vote would be perfunctory based on the way that it was teed up by Boston Public Schools. School committee decides whether or not they're going to withdraw the district from the Massachusetts school choice program. And we talked about this quite a bit in our last podcast, but there was this interesting conversation that ensued kind of prompted by Brandon Cardet Hernandez about why he thought BPS should be participating in school choice and that they shouldn't vote against being a part of the school choice program.
2: This one was tough for me last year. It's tough for me this year, I guess on two, for a few reasons. The first is I'm not seeing, I'm not fully understanding the logic if surrounding communities are not participating. It means we wouldn't see an influx of students leave our system, but there is a possibility where we would see students enter our system. And I'm imagining parents who work in Boston but live outside the city having more access and opportunities for their kids. I guess I'm curious why that doesn't sort of interest us more. And then at the same time, even through October, November and December to today, we have open seats across our system. We're under enrolled. That's why we're having merger conversations today as well. So I don't fully understand sort of I'm not fully Mm -hmm. seeing the Mm -hmm. logic.
1: And then Superintendent Skipper responds.
3: Right. But if that student now becomes our student, and then that student has needs that then you know get identified or developed. That student is now ours. So if that st- student needs program seats in a different school, that student becomes part of BPS with that seat.
2: But with the funding, good. with the funding from their sending district,
3: with the funding from the sending district. But you're there. There's uh, you have this, there's, there's some negotiation there that takes place. Um, it's the same for when we take in students from out of district into a seat for us. And then there's additional services that are needed. There's negotiation um, between the two entities. I think the other thing is our exam school process makes it extra complex because if you had students coming in in the lower grades, as they reach the grades for exams schools, they become part of that process.
2: And
1: Mr. Hernandez goes on to
2: say this. The second piece here that I think I'm just struggling with is it is about a recognition that we don't think every seat is equal in the system. And I think as a school committee member, we have to grapple with that. Like the fact that we think we're taking away a high quality seat from someone else in a vacant school in July is a deep recognition that like we don't think there are high quality seats elsewhere. There are winners and losers in the system. And I think, I don't know, there's a part of me that's like, we should be doing this and putting all of our energy into creating high quality seats everywhere and not the sort of the dance that I find us always doing, which is like why we have to limit innovation as a result of historical poor performance.
0: So those interesting points that, he's making. We sort of made these in the last podcast. But first, you know, he's saying, look, there's only a handful of schools that are full in our district. And so it can't be about seats because we have a lot of seats. And wouldn't it be prudent for us to think about how we might fill more of those seats? Um,
1: This was this was a beautiful is like we had In the merger presentation that was yet to be had, but in the presentation, they're basically talking about all of the empty seats around our school system and how much that is costing the school system to pay for those empty seats. And at the same time, Jill, the superintendent saying, if we participate in school choice, we won't have space for students coming in, right, which is just a massive contradiction.
0: The second point he made, which is really important as well, is that you know he really took issue with the district using deficit language and creating a zero-sum game around especially kids with disabilities and around the exam schools rather than focusing on simply creating more high-quality seats. This was amazing, Joe. Students.
1: This was amazing where he was really pointing out here that The district really focuses on either students with disabilities or students who may be struggling in the school system right. or students who go to the exam schools and, and really is ignoring the conversation about quality schools and quality seats across our city. This has been bought up so many times in our school committee. Right. And they keep on saying to themselves, we should really focus on all schools. We're should like we having so many problems because we don't have enough high quality schools. Right. And yet they fail to focus on it. And in this conversation last night, Mr. Credit Hernandez is pointing this out to yeah. the superintendent saying, you're using language that is not inclusive of all students in our district.
0: Yeah. So it definitely made the school committee members scratch their heads, I think. And they did ask for some research to be done around the program. Who's in it? Who's not in it? Why are they in it? Why are they not in it? What are the projected ramifications of actually being involved in it? And it almost ended up that...
1: Oh, this was amazing, Jill. This is a vote every year that is like the fastest vote, right? They do this annually at this time, and they they spend no more than a few minutes on it. And last night, it it really opened up. And this is a sign, Jill. This is a sign that the school committee members are pushing back appropriately and uncovering these issues that have been glossed over for years and years. Right. So there was a vote.
3: Ms. Providence, will you please call the roll?
1: And here's how it worked.
3: Dr. Alkins.
1: Dr. Stephen Alkins. Abstained. Abstained. Ms. Lopera. Lorena Lopera voted yes. yes to withdraw from school choice. Mr. Cadet Hernandez. Mr.
3: Cadet Hernandez.
2: Voted no. No, I don't vote in favor of it.
1: Mr. Tran votes no. Uh, at least this year, I want to vote no. Saying he was convinced by Mr. Cadet Hernandez's argument.
2: I do find a member, a guy that, uh Hernandez, quite uh, persuasive. This led to a very awkward
1: moment, Jill, where Vice Chair O'Neill. Paused as a point of order Madam Chair, a point of order To make sure that Mr. Tran knew what his vote meant I am confused by Mr. Tran's comment For which Mr. Tran said very clearly No, yes, I understand
2: I understand the yes and no process uh, (laughs) in relation to this vote
1: And I still vote no
3: Mr. O'Neill
1: Mr. O'Neill then voted yes Yes And Chair Robinson voted Yes. yes And the motion passed three to two. And this is amazing, Jill. This is, again, a perfunctory vote every year, typically a perfunctory vote every year. But it wasn't that way last night.
0: That's right. So then the school committee meeting moved on to the votes on the school two school mergers that were proposed.
1: And here, Jill, we heard from Chief of Capital Planning, Della Verne Stanislaus, um, and she sort of gave this this plea for why it's important to begin the school merger process and that it's important for kids and it's important for the school system in the future. We heard from Dr. Granson, who talked about equity and how this was an equitable policy, an equitable way of moving forward. And essentially, we saw a presentation that was kind of framed in, with a couple different arguments. First, it was framed as This is essential because we have so many half-full classrooms that we need to combine school communities. So we have fuller classrooms and we can't hire enough staff. So we need to combine classrooms. So we have potentially less of a need for staff and fuller classrooms. And we also heard that there was a need for this because of inclusion, that in fact, if you don't have bigger schools, you have a harder time with inclusive practices across our districts. We heard these sort of multiple reasons why we need to merge schools. Jill, then then we heard a question from Ms. LaPera, who said, well, in the future, if you're going to close small schools, like single-strand schools, or you're you're doing this because single-strand schools or small schools are not sustainable for the reasons you put forward, does that mean all schools will eventually close who are small schools or single-strand schools? And there wasn't an immediate answer to that, but there was an illusion that these schools are problematic and that you can maybe expect them to close in the future.
0: It definitely felt like a little bit of foreshadowing.
1: And then there was a question, Jill, of that, that was raised by uh, Mr. Conrad Hernandez, who said, can you tell me about the planning process? And this has been the big critique, particularly from the Sumner parents and the and the Philberg parents around the planning process. How will they be engaged? Will they be engaged more than just choosing paint colors on the school walls? And, and so, Jill, what Mr. Hernandez is asking for is a, f- a clear calendar for engagement that is basically from now through the whole the, the whole process. The new school will be open in 2024. Mm-hmm. And he's asking for this clear calendar for how engagement will happen. And here's a response from Chief of Capital Planning, Della Verne
2: Stanislaus. If the school committee votes in favor of the merger, our team is ready to release that calendar as soon as possible to the broader community.
0: And then uh, Brandon Cardet Hernandez asked for, you know, a framework or some sort of guardrails around timing and budget and quite honestly, leadership of the merged entity. He he basically was, you know, kind of just advising that without these things, it they could be asking for a lot more trouble than they really want. You know, the community needs to understand what is the framework within which they can work on creating this new school and creating this merger plan. He also then reflected back on a comment that was made last month that all of the savings from the merged entities would be reinvested in the school. And there was a discussion about that at the last meeting. He asked again, how long is that reinvestment going to last? Is this in perpetuity? And how does how do we expect that it will be spent
1: Jill, Jill, I have a question on this. If if two schools are losing money, right? They're running in a deficit and you merge them. Do you save money?
0: Yeah. I don't know if that's what he was trying to get at because you're exactly right. I mean, they're they're both losing money. And so where is the saving? What is how do you measure how do you, you savings? define savings? And BPS clearly that's said at the loss. last meeting yeah. that
1: they would reinvest all savings, quote unquote, savings yeah. into the new school and that the, that was the intent. And and I think this is what Mr. Cardet Hernandez is kind of pushing at, is saying, what is the budget? What are the savings that that are intended here?
0: Yeah. How do you calculate that? So then Brandon Cardet Hernandez asks, what is the benefit of the merger? What is it that students at these merged schools are actually receiving in terms of staffing or services? And this was the superintendent's response.
3: Yeah. So I, I, think, I think that's in part Um, The work that that happens after the vote, if it is a positive vote, that's working with that team because each of the merges is going to be different.
0: So Bryn wraps up his questions by saying he's worried about the precedent that this is setting, that here are two mergers that school committee is about to vote on and he doesn't understand how they're going to get to an end game because there's nothing going along with the vote that says, and if you vote yes, here here are all the next steps and here is the framework and here is the budget and here's who's going to lead that work. All of that is kind of yet to be figured out. Here's what he said.
2: It (laughs) unintentionally sets precedent for every other merger that we are going into a merger without clarity around our financial commitments. And that's I mean and I'm thinking I, this was not what I was thinking going into this. I actually thought it was going to be an easier question to get an answer to. But like that is not a healthy precedent as we're talking about multiple mergers to be like we'll figure it out as we go.
1: So Jill, we're we're back to this sort of
2: um this cadence
1: where there's unknown information that is critical, I would argue, to vote to a vote of a school committee member. Making um, an informed vote for sure. Right. And the answer to all of these was what's the engagement calendar? We'll give you to after the vote. Who will the leader of a new school be? I mean, this is important, Jill. How do you have a local design effort around a new school if you don't know who the leader is going to be? You have two schools who both have leaders, one leader in each school, and they're not sure if they're going to be there. And they're involved in a new design process when they're not sure if they're going to be leading it. And there was an illusion made that they may even go out and hire a new person for that design process. They should absolutely have a local leader of the new school community engaged in the design process and leading that design process. And then there was a a general question about the budget. Like, how do they imagine? How do they think about what what their parameters are? And again, the answer was, we'll figure that out in the future. All of those things are really critical when when we're going ahead and merging schools or closing schools to know the answer to those before the vote happens.
0: So without all of those important details, the chair, Jerry Robinson, moves to a vote and makes a plea to school committee that children will suffer unless they vote yes.
3: This committee often has to face hard decisions and often have backed away from those decisions. But again, the people that suffered the most of our kids. So we all know this has to be done and we're doing it with our eyes wide open.
1: Um, And so Jill, the school committee moved on to approve both mergers unanimously.
0: Yes. And then we moved on to a short presentation on Madison Park, it, who it sounds like, Ross, the school needs an application process. There's a requirement by the state. And that's what this presentation was all about.
1: Yeah. So, Jill, the, the state had a board meeting, I guess, a couple months ago where they recommended that all vocational schools across the state have a admissions policy. And so there was one recommended last night from the BPS team. And essentially the policy is this, that students fill out a basic application that is just asking for basic information. And that could be on paper or online, that they get two letters of reference, one from a teacher, at least one from a person in a school and potentially one from outside if if that's deemed reasonable. And they need at least two letters of reference, one of which has to be from somebody in the school they're sending school. And then the third is some artifact that represents the student's interest in vocational programming. Those are the three sort of criteria that are being used. And then essentially what would happen is if there's more applicants and seats, they would run a lottery uh, for students to get in. So they're not really looking at the quality of these applicants. They're looking more at just making sure that they fill out the application process. And
0: and you check some boxes and then it maybe ensures that students who are attending know what they're getting into right. because they have to fill out an application exactly. that yeah. would be designed to to drive the understanding that you're going to a vocational school mm-hmm. and therefore part of your experience is going to be relating to a vocation.
1: That's right. So so uh, th- there's about 30% of the students at Madison Park are administratively assigned. And this is not drastically different than many of our other a- open And what does that
0: schools. mean? Means So they, they make no choice, choose, right? Yeah. So
1: they make no choice of where they want to go to to high school. And you know, this happens more uh, more often than we may think that mm-hmm. el- that students don't make a choice and then the district then assigns them administratively to a school.
0: And they just assign them in order to fill up schools is that?
1: They do. They they assign yeah. them across our open enrollment high schools which have no admissions requirements and that's how it works currently and Madison Park has about 30% of the students are administratively assigned. This this process would it would essentially eliminate the administrative assignment. Uh, it it would be all students have to make, you know, concerted choice to go to Madison Park right. and understand that it is a CTE school. Jill, I would argue on this policy that this is not a bad policy for every school. Yeah, I've been advocating this for a few years now that we should, in our, you know, sixth grade, if it's sixth grade and students are applying, need to apply for a seven to twelve school, or if it's in eighth grade and they need to apply for a ninth grade a slot, that every teacher in those grades should work with students on making a choice. They should students should fill out a, a very basic application with their parent or guardian. And the student should ask for a letter of reference. These are just good things to do in life, and they're good to make a choice. And the student, when they do that, they feel like they're applying somewhere that they want to belong somewhere. And the school gets to know the student a little better. So they're not anonymous when they're entering into the new school.
0: How do you, though, respond to Brandon Cardet Hernandez's? question about, you know, he he used himself as an example. He didn't have a lot of support going through high school. He, you know, he sort of said, look, I, I don't even know that I would have known to fill out mm-hmm. an application. Certainly don't know that I would have had anything saved to produce as part of the application. Yep. So are you saying...
1: This should happen in school.
0: The onus is on the, that, the sending school. A- absolutely. Yeah.
1: And in the sending school, the sending school should... D- in the spring or in the in the winter in in preparation for assignment should spend time working with students on how do we make a choice of where you want to go to high school they they should talk about it they should visit schools they should make a concerted choice and they should be supported in that choice and getting that complete that's part of i believe is what we should be teaching kids uh, to advocate for themselves to learn how to do that and the school should be supporting students in doing so
0: and that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting.
1: We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your student, please send us an email at podcast at That's S-H-A-H foundation
0: Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston's students. Have a great day.